I probably have heard the word reconciliation ad nauseum since I'm uh, from Northern Ireland and for me it was part of the lived experience of growing up in a conflict area but I didn't really know very much about the concept at all um, and it was only and much of my work uh, in my career has not been about Northern Ireland at all it's been about other conflicts and it was only about 2008-2009 and I decided that I would do some work uh, in Northern Ireland and while I was there I was working on various things um, uh, mainly with um, former paramilitaries and really looking into questions about motivations for political violence and so forth but uh, I realized that um, there was a huge public uh, discussion around the concept of reconciliation and uh, many of the people that I was talking to, former paramilitaries, were actually deeply involved in uh, what you might call peace work or peace building work. And uh, so it seemed to me quite an interesting um, um, uh, experience to see these people who were former perpetrators actually deeply involved in uh, renouncing violence and uh, trying to ensure that there would be no recurrence of violence. However, uh, during that uh, episode in 2009, I think it was, I was interviewing a former paramilitary, a uh, Republican paramilitary, and he, he told me this little anecdote um, about uh, his experience of one of these sessions, which was enabled by an expert of some kind, where he was involved in a kind of cross-community uh, meeting uh, where they were discussing um, the conflict and various you know, competing narratives of the conflict. And he and another paramilitary from the Loyalist side were asked to go into the middle and they, were, they formed a circle around these two guys sitting in, on, on chairs in the middle of this group. <coughs> and the enabler asked them to uh, hold the candle in each hand, to light the candles, and then to talk about their pain and their remorse and he thought that this was hilarious and it, when he told me it I actually thought it was quite hilarious too um, but it was uh, an, an indicative of the kind of approaches that were being taken in trying to promote intergroup reconciliation in Northern Ireland and I didn't know very much about it at the time and since having read some of the literature it's actually quite seems quite a typical kind of approach that kind of promotional contact and positive uh, feelings and um, discussion about the past and so forth. Um, so over the last few years I've kind of been thinking much more about this concept of reconciliation and in the literature it seems to me <coughs> that it's not a very well refined one. It's, it's extremely prevalent in the literature on peace building or transitional justice. Um, but it's not a very well theorized one and it's not a very well elaborated one. And so the, ter the title of the talk that I'm giving on bad terms kind of tries to capture that because on the one hand we have conflicts that are largely driven by intergroup antagonisms uh, so you have bad terms between the groups and it seems to me that reconciliation is itself inherently a not very well it's a bad term I think 
it's not one that actually um, helps us explain post-conflict dynamics very well. And what I propose to do in the talk is try and identify some of the reasons that I think this is the case. <coughs> Generally in the literature, <coughs> reconciliation will be seen in very positive, as a very positive concept, in very positive terms. Um, it's seen as a major attribute that will generate or regenerate good relations in a society that's experienced conflict. It's seen as essential for consolidating peace. But beyond that, what, what is the content of it? It seems to me it's very fuzzy, very vague, and uh, there are different genre, genres in the literature that talk about reconciliation. There is the more Christian theological approaches that you might associate with uh, Desmond Tutu or Jean-Paul Lederach, um, and obviously drawing on the theological traditions to promote the idea of reconciliation. But it's also widely used in social science literature, not just, I mean, actually political science is, is much less represented in this field than other uh, social sciences, sociology, psychology, social psychology, law. Um, it's widely used. And that's not to say that those, two, those genres can't be linked because there's no reason why social scientists can't be very religious and draw on their religious thinking and infuse that into their work. And that is the case, actually, often. Um, <clears throat> so what are the associations, the positive associations, in the term? Well, there's nothing dramatically new in what I'm going to say about that. I'm sure most of you are very familiar with it. It's just that I want to kind of be very clear about what, what it is that's inherent in terms of the content of this term. I think it, generally it's seen either as a process or an act. It could be an act, but it's also seen as a process. Uh, and it's usually seen as some kind of public performative process or act. The performative aspect is very important, it seems to me, amongst those who promote it as an idea. And I think it's played out in a number of stages. And there is a sequence. <coughs> there is a logical sequence involved. Uh, now, as I say, you know, the, 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 the elements of this sequence will be familiar to you, but maybe you have, maybe, maybe you have, maybe you have not thought about it as sequential. So the sequence would be, in my view, <coughs> it would start with dialogue, contact, dialogue. Uh, that would feed into positive relations. The assumption is that the contact and dialogue will feed in. There are a lot of assumptions in this sequence. That, so the first assumption would be that the contact and dialogue would feed into positive relationships. That might then lead to a second stage where there would be some admission of guilt. So there's a presumption that we can identify guilt and this would feed into a process, a confessional process, truth-telling process. Again, all of this very positive, that this would be cathartic for the participants and also for the conflict, post-conflict situation more generally. Uh, the third stage would be one where there would be some expression of remorse, um, a 
apologies, saying sorry, etc. And that that would be rewarded, the assumption is, by some kind of forgiveness process or act or process of forgiveness. There would be another stage, possibly, of punishment. Of course, that's where transitional justice, probably, will um, uh, uh, come into play. So punishment for the past transgressions. And then the next stage is reparation, closure, healing, redemption, of course. Uh, and then lastly, well, this is where I think we run into some uh, lack of clarity in the concept. So then what? What comes after all of that? It's not very clear. We can assume, we, the assumption in much of the writing is that this will lead to some kind of normalization of society. That uh, it will lead to some kind of production of common interests, common goals, some kind of shared society. The antagonisms that fed the conflict will be overcome, surmounted, they will wither away, whatever. Um, so it's this idea of what the ultimate vision for this process is that seems to me lacking. What is the final vision, if there is one, of the good life, the post-conflict good life? It's very vague. Um, it might be some kind of harmony, social harmony, but it's not clear exactly what, how, what that is and how it will be achieved. And those are pretty important questions for any post-conflict society because conflict will be driven by all kinds of factors, ideology, economic interests, territory, etc. So it seems that this is a very important gap if you're, if you're not discussing key aspects of the conflict itself in terms of a, an ideal outcome for reconciliation. Um, also as part of this there is a fairly general negative viewpoint about um, forgetting, silence, sort of late like uh, amnesia. No, that's frowned upon generally in the literature, as seen as not um, conducive to any kind of positive relationships post-conflict. Seen in more or less in the same context as denial. Uh, now, what else can we say about the term reconciliation? It's seen usually as occurring across several dimensions. The more theological, religious literature will emphasize the interpersonal aspect. But social psychologists, for example, will emphasize intergroup, often, not always. But there's also interstate dimensions. But I would say a very strong impulse in the literature is a focus on dyadic relationships and a key one there might be victims and perpetrators for example often seen as very distinct categories um, and not really a great deal of concern with uh, the spectrum of involvement in a conflict I would say that generally speaking the term is understood to be about values and certainly the practitioner effort 
in promoting reconciliation, and there's quite an industry in that in many post-conflict societies, and states and international organizations give quite a lot of money to this activity. Uh, it's very much dedicated to changing values and behavior. Um, and to that extent, I think we could draw quite usefully on Allport's work on prejudice because ultimately when, when the practitioners are seeking to change values, they're seeking to change prejudice, essentially break down prejudice and overcome prejudice. Um, and there are two things in particular that I think emanate from Allport's work right way through the last half of the 20th century to the present. And the first is this idea of contact, the contact hypothesis, and the assumption that promoting contact between antagonistic groups, breaking down barriers and so forth, will pr produce some form of reconciliation between them. And I think this is kind of, the, the, well, that, that idea is usually uh, adopted uncritically, I would say. More re in the more recent literature, I would say from the late 90s on, the process is, is mediated by experts, enablers, become, become much more important, figure, figure much more prominently um, uh, as, uh, as um, producers of reconciliation. Uh, the contact uh, hypothesis, I think, does underpin much of their practitioner work, and um, you know there are certain other aspects to that. You know, the contact should be non-threatening, non-hierarchical. It should be aimed at producing common goals, common interests, and so on and so forth. So that's one idea I think that is, is resonates from that work. A second idea that, the, that resonates is law-based approaches. Probably you all know a lot more about that than I do if you're working on transitional justice. Um, because I would say that, that Allport's conclusion about the possibilities of overcoming pre prejudice really from a public policy perspective are about law-based approaches, ultimately, that you need to change the conditions of conformity through law, penalizing incentivizing certain types of behavior and values. Um, but if you think about how Allport framed his ideas about prejudice, I think it's, it's important for us to remember that he framed them in terms of a monumental challenge. Overcoming prejudice, he compared to smashing the atom and think about the enormous resources that went into that and the amount of time that it took. And that's how he saw overcoming prejudice. It wasn't something that was going to be achieved very easily or readily. It was going to take huge, it was a monumental effort required. And commitment, of course. Um, why? Because of the complexity at work. It's about the historical nature of prejudice, it's about the social relations that are built around it, economies. It's about psychological factors, conformity, social pressure, socialization. How do you overcome all of that? This is a major project of social engineering, actually, to overcome that. 
so all of that is well and good, but at the at, at the end of this, I'm still not sure what the vision of the good life is post-conflict. If you take the concept of reconciliation, what is it? What is it that it, that that the the end goal that is being aspired to is? And I would say one of the great weaknesses in the uh, in, in the approaches that draw on this term, this concept, are that they do not pay much attention to structural features. They don't pay much attention to power relations, to ideologies, competing ideologies. Um, they don't pay much attention to p specific structural features in, in particular conflicts, you know, territory, segregation. Um, And as a sort of slight excursus from that, if you think about much of the political science literature on conflict resolution, much of it is hardly mentions reconciliation. It's about institutions. It's about the state. It's about parties. It's about elites. Um, it's very much pivoted around um, institutional agreements, power sharing, not only power sharing. There's very little emphasis in the political science literature on conflict resolution on society and or on reconciliation, actually. So I'll come back to the idea of structures in a, in a moment, um, what other fundamental aspects of a conflict are not addressed in discussions of reconciliation? I mean, what's being left, what's being glossed over or what's being left out? Let's take some of these key elements that I said at the beginning that are the standard content, I would say. For example, the idea of truth. Narratives around truth. Now, the, the the assumption is that competing narratives about truth relating to a particular conflict can be reconciled. That they can be reconciled. That they can be unified, integrated. That compromises in the narrative can be achieved to produce a new one, a new hegemonic one, a new dominant one. I think there's a lack of nuance there as regards the strength of competing narratives. And um, there's a kind of underestimation, I would say, of the power of narrative, ultimately. And much of, of the discussion is actually about imposing a new narrative in a conflict situation and much of the difficulty actually is in trying to do that and usually the, uh, often we find advocates of the new narrative or outsiders to the conflict trying to impose certain ways of thinking about the conflict so you can see that that's a recipe for critical resistance um, sometimes uh, the 
uh, narrative, the conflict narratives are described as mythologies, the mythologies, mythological narratives in the conflict situation. You know, that's a very hierarchical way of viewing um, the dynamics in a conflict. Um, also, the way to over the way to inculcate, promote a new narrative, usually media is seen as being critically important. Education, academia, academics, promoting particular narratives are seen as critical. Now, if we talk, if we think about that media, academic positioning, um, educational curriculum, textbooks, etc. You know, we need to think about the power asymmetries that that are present in any post-conflict situation. And we need to think about what kind of what kind of narratives are being promoted, and why, rather than just assume that some kind of agreed narrative will come out of a process of engagement between the antagonists in a particular conflict. Um, another kind of excursus here because I think there is something at work particularly in European discussions <laughs> about reconciliation and that is this idea um, yeah, as part of the European European movement European identity and the whole process of building um, uh, European Union which is the idea of a Franco-German model of reconciliation after World War II it's, it's an undercurrent that's there um, you know, this is the, one of the great grand projets of peace building after World War II. And um, I was very much uh, interested in the work of Gardner Feldman on this. I would say that, that there's an important distinction that we need to make here between that model as it's put forward, in that many of the conflicts that we're dealing with in political science and comparative politics are intrastate conflicts. Uh, they're not interested interstate conflicts usually. <coughs> and the Franco-German model is a structure, it's, it's a conflict between states that they're dealing with there. And that's a very different um, um, set of issues that are involved. You have separate jurisdictions for a start Whereas if you have an intrastate conflict, it, you're dealing with antagonistic parties within one jurisdiction. Um, you're dealing with separate societies. You're dealing um, with very fundamentally different challenges, it seems to me, between state and intrastate, interstate and intrastate conflicts. Also, I would say that one of the key kind of markers of that Franco-German model of reconciliation is that Germany completely capitulated its narrative. It, it, it just completely accepted guilt. Now, there was a very pragmatic, I mean there might have been an ethical dimension to that, I would say there was a very strong pragmatic push in that Germany wanted to reintegrate very quickly. The Adenauer um, uh, government in the late 40s was very keen on promoting um, uh, German remorse, German reconciliation, reparations, etc., etc. 
to do it very quickly and to reintegrate very quickly. So there were very pragmatic reasons, but they did completely capitulate, completely. That is an improbability in any intrastate conflict. The conflict parties have their own versions of the conflict. It's very unlikely that one of them will completely capitulate in that way. So I just set that, that, that out in, in, in order to get you to, to think and to recognize perhaps that intrastate conflicts are, need a different kind of lens to understand them. So I mentioned this idea about social engineering to overcome some of the structural impediments, um, changing power structures, changing values, changing identities even is, is ultimately one of the ideals of reconciliation, creating a new identity, superimposing it on the situation. Is that possible? How likely is that? What would it require? It would require enormous state capacity for a start. It would require enormous state commitment, huge cost probably. It would require taking on a lot of invested and trend interests in many conflict states or societies. Also grand schemes of social engineering don't have a good historical record, recent ones in the 20th century. It just doesn't seem very likely that a grand project of social re-engineering of a post-conflict society to change these structures is going to work. Certainly not in any kind of medium or long medium term. <coughs> okay, so you know I'm trying to set out a fairly critical thinking, skeptical approach. So let's then look at the Northern Ireland case to see um, to see how this plays out in that particular case. And the first thing I would say about Northern Ireland is that what's interesting, one of the things that's interesting about it is, about the peace agreement in Northern Ireland, is that the way that so many different uh, political leaders in uh, Britain, Ireland, United States, Europe, promoted it as a model. The Belfast Agreement was a model peace agreement. They never really said what, what made it a model. They never really went into the content aspects to describe it, you know, to say why it might be a model. When they were pushed, uh, people like Peter Hain, Jonathan Paul, who gave a talk at LSE just a few weeks ago around his new book, which is largely derived from his Northern Ireland experience, talking to terrorists, and that gives a clue to what they saw as key element, and that was the idea of dialogue. So here you have Northern Ireland's Belfast Agreement, Good Friday Agreement. Probably, if anybody, if you if you read it, it's so intricate. The in, the institutional elements to it are so finely worked, so nuanced, uh, so complex. I don't understand all of them. Uh, I've never really understood the Haunt system, actually. And no matter how many times my colleagues explain it to me, I still don't get it. Uh, very complex institutional engineering and what do the, the political leaders talk about? Dialogue. 
They never talk about the power-sharing arrangements. Not only do they not talk about the intricacies of the power-sharing institutional arrangements, they don't talk about reconciliation. They don't talk about society. In fact, in the Belfast Agreement, reconciliation is a very short paragraph, and it's an aspiration. It's not elaborated or explained in any way. So that seems rather curious, because they, they're going to the first, very first part of the sequence on reconciliation, if you remember, which was contact, dialogue. And that's it. That's where they, they start there, and they stop there. It seems, it seems odd to me. Um, also, what is often downplayed is uh, the internal aspects. Often what is overplayed is the external pressures to achieve agreement. Um, so the role, of, the role of British and Irish governments, the role of the United States. Now if we think about this, Northern Ireland as a model, how does that fit with this idea of, of reconciliation? And, you know, as I say, it wasn't as if this um, concept wasn't discussed or um, operationalized in Northern Ireland. <coughs> you know, some of the early um, peace-building um, efforts in Europe, actually, you know, Coromila, I'd say, mid-1960s, mid to late-60s, you know, very early on, promoting dialogue and peace-building in a conflict potential place. Um, so it's not as if the term wasn't familiar. Uh, so what have we got in the agreement with regards to reconciliation? That classic sequence that I said out for you at the beginning. Well, we, do, we don't really have very much, actually. There's no... There's not much admission of guilt, really. There's no process of truth <coughs> recovery, really. There's no real process of transitional justice. Um, there's no agreement on who a victim is. There's no agreement, really, on many aspects that you would associate with, with um, reconciliation. Um, there's a, we've, we had a few big inquiries, the Savile Inquiry, 2010, the Quarry Inquiry, 2003. Uh, but in, a sense, in essence, there's a lack of interest <laughs> in pursuing the kinds of law-based approach that you would associate with classically with transitional justice, you know, pursuing cases, perpetrators, and so forth. It's generally absent in Northern Ireland. Um, so no truth recovery process, no transitional justice process, essentially. Um, no agreement, no, no agreed narrative about the conflict. Because there's no agreed narrative about the conflict, there's no agreed narrative about guilt, or about perpetrators, or about victims. Assuming you believe that there are distinct categories. Um, there's no uh, agreed narrative about memorialization. Even uh, in Northern Ireland, they talk about what about re? what about re? what about this? What about that? You did this. We did that. You did that. You know, it's that kind of situation. There's just a lack of fundamental engagement, even. And there, it's not as if there haven't been efforts to do this. The British government have set up several 
There was the Eames Bradley inquiry, consultative group on the past, reported in 2009, kicked into the long grass. There was a Bloomfield report on victims in 1998, also more or less kicked into the long grass. The Haas, Richard Haas, you know, a big hitter in American foreign policy terms, couldn't get any agreement on these legacy, so-called legacy issues in December 2013. So lack of fundamental agreement on some of these basic sequence elements in reconciliation, and yet it's promoted as a model. Also, thinking about the contact hypothesis, going back to you know, my, my mentioning of uh, Coromila, which is one of these peace centers established uh, even before the, the, the violence in Northern Ireland started in 1969. Um, it's hard, I mean, Coromila itself doesn't keep very good records of uh, of, of who, you know, the numbers of people that it's sort of processed, if you like. Um, by the late 80s, you're talking about 8,000 people a year and thousands of day visitors to Coromila. So if you think about that over time, you're talking about probably several hundred thousand people who went through Coromila and other other forms of that kind of contact. And uh, with what result? I would say fairly minimal impact on the conflict itself, fairly minimal impact on the conflict and dynamics. Um, but one of the things that has come out of it is that there's quite a, an extensive enabling industry in Northern Ireland in mediation. Many tens of thousands of people are involved in it. Uh, it was quite a big industry in the 90, late 90s, by the late 90s, when the EU were pumping in peace program funding. It's now, you know, going through a tumultuous period because of the era of austerity that we live in. That's one of the things, obviously, it would be first to get chopped. Um, but it seems to me that 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 kind of process of of operationalizing the contact hypothesis, I think, illustrates well a, a lack of certain lack of thinking about conflict dynamics. Because the assumption is that promoting good contact is going to impinge upon the conflict dynamics, and I would say, the the, the you know. Obviously, you know, how do you make the evidential link? But the fact that the conflict went on for so long, the fact that the, the conflict ultimately <coughs> was settled from the extremes, and the fact that uh, people continue to vote for those extreme parties is indicative of the fact that that kind of uh, um, process of reconciliation through these kind of enablers had fairly minimum, minimal effects. Not saying that the effects that they did have were not positive ones or, or useful ones or. Uh, good ones, but I would say in, in terms of the impact on the conflict, fairly minimal. Now, let, let me then re return to one of the things I said at the beginning, which is about structure and how discussions about reconciliation ultimately don't really address those deeper structural aspects to conflict. 
So in the case of Northern Ireland, I can identify a couple of structures that are fundamental to the conflict, fundamental to the issues that reconciliation should be addressing, but which have not been addressed and are not being addressed. Uh, first is residential segregation. And if you think back to Allport's work, I mean, segregation was a huge part of what he was concerned with. And remember, he saw it as a monumental challenge for public policy to do anything about it. And I think Northern Ireland illustrates that very well too. There's been virtually no change in residential segregation. And in fact, it walled, security walled interfaces, in, especially in working class communities, have proliferated since 1998. So there's more securitization of interfaces, not less, since the peace agreement. Um, so that's one thing, residential segregation. Now if you think about that, that is a huge impediment to reconciliation. What can you do about it? Well, this is where I think the discussions about reconciliation do not, you know, do not take that next step in thinking, you know, what should the public policy be on that? Maybe return to that moment. And the second one is educational segregation, which is unchanged in Northern Ireland at, at primary and secondary levels. So about 95% pupils will go to segregated school. And that hasn't changed. And the agreement did nothing about that. Now, you could say there are good reasons, well, not good reasons, but I can see why the elites who made the agreement did not then and do not now do anything about that. Because it would require enormous political commitment. You would have to take on an enormous part of Catholic Church, Protestant churches, uh, political parties. A lot of them would be opposed to it. So you can see why that structural impediment has not been addressed also. Um, so, you know, these are huge public policy challenges. Um, and it seems to me that, that they're not unique to Northern Ireland. You know, I've done work on Kosovo, I've done work on Bosnia. Um, you know, these are, these are fairly, at least in these three cases that I know fairly well, these are very common uh, issues. They're usually when sociologists in particular uh, who write about reconciliation, at least the work that I've seen that they've done on Northern Ireland, they often will use, in terms of their methodology, they will use survey, surveys, either social surveys, mass social surveys, or very um, targeted surveys that they've conducted in their own research. And nearly always the values that they extract in terms of from the results are that, that peop, there is a desire for, um, for reconciliation and for good group relations and for mixing and all of these other positive things that we associate with some kind of good life post-conflict. But you know, then you have the, reality, the political <laughs> realities of who people vote for. And that's the same in Kosovo and Bosnia. Who do people ultimately vote for? They vote for, for the ethnic blocs. So we have this, 
this disjuncture there between the kind of low level sociological evidence and the greater political um, um, outcome. Also, I would say that a major issue here is is about not just about Northern Ireland, but the, but the British state too. The lack of commitment to impose to impose uh, uh, um, public policy choices in Northern Ireland. Um, for example, in the case of segregated uh, housing, public housing, social housing, or segregated education, you know, think of the enormous political commitment that would, that would take, and effort, and time. And, you know, I don't think politicians in Westminster just simply have the time to bother uh, about this. Um, and even if they did, what would the outcome be of an integrated educational system, for example? What kind of curriculum would you have? Who's going to write the textbooks? If you don't have an agreed narrative, what kind of textbooks are you going to have? What kind of teaching are you going to have? You know, how are you going to screen the teaching? Etc. Etc. It's just a, it's, it's a hugely complex problem. Um, I mentioned the legacy issues, and the problem with continued residential segregation is that it reinforces the ethnic block mentality. Um, now, I've talked to a lot of people who work on, on um, civil society kind of um, bottom-up approaches in Northern Ireland, and they're very reluctant to, to accept these kind of, what I would say, very pragmatic uh, approaches. They, you know, they, they want, obviously, to aspire to an ideal of some kind of integrated, shared society, but they don't really think through all of the, the impediments to that and how you would deal with that. You know, how would you reach an agreed narrative of a, a, about a particular... You know, we're celebrating the Battle of Waterloo, which the French, you know, blocked the... You know, there's no agreed narrative about that, for goodness sake. Um, so, um, huge problem. Uh, so what has tended to happen in Northern Ireland is that they tended to kick a lot of this into the long grass with the connivance of the British and Irish governments, actually. Because the British government has a lot to lose. You know, some of the inquiries about collusion, for example, or even the Bloody Sunday inquiry. And it's not as if some of these transitional justice issues would not affect agents of the British state. It would, definitely. So the British government is as much part of the, the process of, of just kicking the whole thing down the road. I thought you were giving me a five-minute warning. <laughs> well, I, I'm coming to a conclusion, actually. Now, um, so there we are. Northern Ireland, uh, as a case for reconciliation, doesn't really hold up very well. And yet there is peace. Very low levels of violence. Um, very unlikely there would be a return to violence, in my view. Uh, the elites are kind of muddling along 
they're not killing each other, they're muddling along in a, a pragmatic political way, which is good. Uh, but at the societal level, the society is very deeply segregated still. Now, Northern Ireland is different from other deeply segregated places, let's say like Bosnia or Kosovo. There are a lot of shared public spaces in Northern Ireland. You know, workplace, shared workplace, shared public space. I mean, there are also public spaces that are not shared and are sealed off and walled off, but for the most part, there's a sharing of public space. But sharing in parallel communities, essentially, not much social uh, integration. In That's not likely to change, I don't think, very soon. Um, so I think some of these features of of the end goal of reconciliation, the idea of a shared society in particular, just not very well thought through uh, when it comes to a case like Northern Ireland. And also then there is this the whole business of transitional justice. Um, you know, is Northern Ireland not succeeding in its reconciliation because there hasn't been a process, like a valid process of, of uh, transitional justice? Is that why it's not? You know, generating this reconciled society. I would say it's irrelevant, actually. I think if, you know, the, 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 when you look at the process since 1998, well, on, on, what I was going to say, when you look at the process since 1998, every time these legacy issues are, there's an attempt to address some of these legacy issues, including through transitional justice mechanisms, I mean, discussion, it creates enormous political friction. Now, is, it, is the argument, well, they just need to kind of get it over and done with, and then it will generate some more, um, um, some process that would be conducive to in good intergroup relations, if they can get it over with. I, I don't think so, myself. So moving to a conclusion, uh, Where does this leave the concept? I just wonder even whether it should be abandoned. I mean, it's fine for religious people to talk about reconciliation. I, I don't have any problem with that. But if it does, if it's not very well theorized and if it's not really very um, productive as a social science concept, well, why do we talk about it? Why should we use it? You know, maybe we can think of something else. Um, because it does, many conflicts are messy and they end messily. And reconciliation is, is, a, is a concept that is not, does not lend itself to messy endings. Um, so maybe we need to think about some other term that as social scientists we need to focus more on social peace or something like that. Um, so to conclude, I wanted to conclude with a couple of thoughts about, well, one main thought about Alport. And that was, he talked about windows for executive action. That was how he thought about, you know, the, the ability for governments to do something about prejudice and to break down group antagonisms. He was 
very keen on the idea of government action, but he also saw it in terms of episodic windows of opportunity um, to engage, I would say, from his perspective, in tinkering social engineering, not a grand project. And um, I would say in a case like Northern Ireland and in some other cases where consociational type resolution institutional mechanisms have been used to resolve the conflict, it makes those windows for executive action much more problematical because the executive is a partnering executive and it makes executive agreement, like reaching executive agreement uh, on a, anything to do with identity issues is is extremely problematical and therefore it makes these, it kind of, it, it takes away these windows of opportunity for executive action. Okay, I'm going to stop there because I'm already over time a little bit. Thank you very much. Um.